But here we are, and it's very obvious that as we are embarking this new journey together, first day, I see many souls and having conversated with many of, of you that, uh, that you're excited and that you are eager to see what God has in store for us. It's great to see. And you also see how you are also eager that, that for His glory to be manifested in our relationship together, in our fellowship, in our serving one another. But do you know what else I see from here? I see a miracle unfolding before our own eyes. Men, women, children with different colors, different backgrounds, representing many nations in, in, in a small room. Many, many of us that come from different walks of lives and all together combined coming to worship the Lord God the Lord of hosts. Well, in this age, it's very uncommon to have a congregation with this so diverse backgrounds and interests and, and get together to worship God. Brothers, this is not short of a miracle. And we ought to praise God for this. But there is one question that we want to answer today. And that is, how do we continue doing this? How do we continue doing what? How do we continue praising God together, worshiping Him together in this marvelous and this wonderful blood-bought unity? I don't understand. I mean, aren't we doing it already? I mean, here we are, worshiping, singing beautiful songs together. What seems to be the problem? Well, there is one thing to come together and sing um, Christian songs. And then after that, we shut the shop. After we're all done, we go home and we'll see you next week. And it's a whole another thing to stay, to fellowship with um, each other and to truly one, love one another, not just during the two hours and Sunday morning, but the, throughout the whole week. People come, different ages, different interests and ethnicity. How do we continue being diverse and yet united together in love, in devotion, in service to each other? How do we do this? The answer in three-letter word. Even a, a Sunday school child could answer it for us. It's God. Steve Lawson rightly said, tell me what you think of God and I tell you how you'd respond to the temptations of this world. A high view of God leads to high and godly living. And we can easily append to this quote and say that a high view of God leads to unity and harmony. A low view of God will lead to disunity and division. Tell me what you think of God, and I will tell you how united we'll stand. And this is where it begins. Everything, one way or another, will hinge upon this 
one thing, our view of God. If we want to do this right, then there's nothing more important for us to know than the greatness of our God. And we would make this as the foundation of this unity. Amen? Well, with that being said, would you turn to Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 6 from verse 1 to 4. And we want to look through this wonderful small passage on how great our God is that we are here today worshipping together. Isaiah 6 verses 1 to 4. And I'm reading in NASB. And the word of God says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Just a quick background to understand what's going on. It was 740 BC when Isaiah encountered a holy God. And at that time, there was a rapid moral decay. There was the worship of Baal. They were offering sacrifices to idols. And on top of that, there was a national security threat on Jerusalem. When the Assyrian Empire was building up momentum, they were gaining power and they were presenting real threats. The only person... That pulled everything together. Just died. Uzziah, the king, died. And in this scene, what Isaiah is, what Isaiah is doing is that he's inviting us to taste a glimpse of the majesty of God. And I trust that by the end of this message that we will grow in hunger to know more of that God of Isaiah. The outline for today's message is just simple. It's three points. The position of God, the holiness of God, and then finally the worship of God. So we start with the position of God, and we read in verse 1 again. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on our throne." And please note, the first thing Isaiah saw was not the angels. It was not the temple or even the throne or the house or the the smoke that is filling up the house. What did he see? He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. One thing to note here is the very person that Isaiah saw is none other but the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's impossible to see the Father because in John 6, 46 tells us that not anyone has seen the Father except the Son. John 12, 40 is even more precise and it says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. It is the Son of God, the pre-incarnated Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is in the spotlight here. Moving forward, it says, I saw the Lord. He identified him to be Lord. Now, there are two Hebrew words that translate to the word Lord. There is Yahweh, and that speaks of the nature of God, who God is, and his covenant with his people. That's Yahweh. But here, the word Lord is actually the word Adonai. And this word speaks as a title of God and speaks of his sovereignty, his immense power. This is what the Lord sitting upon a throne means. The Almighty God assuming his position of absolute power and authority over the whole world. Psalm 71, 16, it says, I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. Psalm 147, 5, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. Now, what is the connection between the King Uzziah's death and his vision that Isaiah saw? It's kind of like God is saying, though the earthly king died, though there is a rapid increase of moral decay and there is national security threat, and though the future is looking pretty dim, but the divine king is living and well. He's still on the throne. And what's he doing? Throne. He is judging. He is ruling. He is reigning. Isaiah 40, 28 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. In other words, God doesn't get tired. He doesn't say, just hold on for a minute, let me catch my breath so I can continue. No, he doesn't say that. God doesn't submit his resignation. He never, ever gets tired. Brothers, I want to say to you a word of encouragement, even from the very beginning, that human rulers come and go. We know this. But God is there on that throne forever. The whole world can be falling apart all around you. And circumstances may not be going according to your plan. And it doesn't make any sense to you. But I stand upon the word of God and I say to you that God is still sitting on that throne. And how is he seated? We continue and it says, lofty and exalted. The ESV translation says, high and lifted up. This is the position of our God. High and lifted up. This God is infinitely higher than 
any mountain of trials you're experiencing. He's elevated infinitely higher than the haughtiness of the heart of man. All other thrones are beneath this throne. Of course, the one who's seated in a throne, he created all other thrones. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created, heaven and earth, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, all things were created through him and for him. So the Lord Almighty is resting on a throne and no one can challenge him. No one. No one can compete with him. Brothers, our desire is to lift him up. He made us. And then what did he do? He redeemed us with his precious blood. So we ought to lift his name high, right? Magnify his holy name. We'll continue. And Isaiah says, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Train of his robe. What does this mean? Train of his robe filling the temple. Now, I know that this used to happen, I don't know, about 30 years ago, up until 30 years ago, where in any wedding, you know, a bride would uh, have a train of her dress. And that train tends to be a, a lot larger than nowadays. And imagine this. Imagine you go to a wedding and you look and there is that bride with her wonderful dress and that train and it's filling up the platform and the steps and the aisles and and the seats and everything and you say wow this is this is awesome this is incomparable splendor there's something beautiful about this something glorious about that and just like that it says with the train of his robe Filling the temple. Majesty. And there is more majesty. And there is so much more majesty. This is, this is not an ordinary robe. That belonged to an ordinary king. No. This is a glorious robe. That belongs to a glorious uh, king. And there is nothing in this temple that is not touched. By his majesty. Or how we ought by faith borrow Isaiah's eyeballs. And, and, and by faith we would behold God's height and depth and length and width. His grandeur position. How we ought to be awestruck by his majesty. Just like Isaiah did. And how would we apply this in our lives? We align our hearts of worship and we ought to want to proclaim His name, His position. Where? In the church, at homes, our work, in streets of Melbourne. This is the position of our God. High and lifted up. Exalted. Now, if we want to declare his position, what do we actually ought to be declaring? What is it about God that sets him apart from his creation? We come to the second point, the holiness of God. Now, look with me in verse 3 for now. We'll come back to verse 2 later. 
with me how the angelic beings are declaring what they're declaring about God. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He's mentioned three times. Why is that? I mean, they could have just simply said, holy is the Lord of hosts. What does it mean to say, holy, holy, holy? Well, in, in today's age with technology, where you, you want to write a letter and you want to emphasize a word, what do you do? You underline it, make it italic, bold, right? Well, back then there were no computers. And when everything was orally spoken and relayed, how do they emphasize a word? They repeat it. Period three times. Holy, holy, holy is the very emphasis that they wanted to ascribe to God. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean that God is holy? Simply, it means that God is unique in his beauty, incomparable to his glory in his glory. Cut above, infinitely higher in beauty and glory above his creation. Exodus 15, 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds? Answer, no one is like you. Isaiah 40, 25 says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says, the Holy One. To whom? To no one. God stands alone in His splendorous glory without equal. In His holiness, He is set apart from His creation. Yes, He is involved in every aspect of creation, but yet at the same time, there is no one like Him. No one. What does this mean? If you bring any attribute of God, you will find that He is incomparable to all His creatures. He's holy in every way. And I want to give you a couple of examples so that we understand, so it can sink into us when we ascribe holiness to God, what it actually means. So we say, for example, God is holy, and the most common one is holy in His righteousness, right? Well, what does it mean that God is holy in his righteousness? Some say, well, it means he's righteous. It's just simple as that. Well, the angels are righteous, right? Oh, no, 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 he's sinless. Well, the angels never sinned. So in what sense is he holy in his righteousness? When the scripture um, depicts for us that God is holy in his righteousness, it's not just that he does what is right, but he is the one that decrees what is right. He is the very measuring rod of righteousness. So even if you want to compare God with angels, you will find that what God, what God is righteous means that he's the one that sets the law, but the angels, they obey the law. When we say that God is holy in his righteousness, it means he's the one that defines by his own nature the moral law. All the angels could do, as righteous as they are, is just to comply, 
to that moral law that God defines. God is holy in his righteousness, meaning he is unique, incomparable, and not even angels could ever match him in that. Let's pick another attribute. Let's pick God's power. God is holy in his power, meaning he is infinitely beautiful, marvelous to behold in his power that no one could ever compare with God when we talk about his power. All right, well, I want it to sink in. So let's just elaborate a little bit more in that one. If I would ask you, what is the most powerful nation in the whole world, in all of history? What would it be? What do you think? All right, USA. All right, it's, it is a bit debatable at the moment, but it's true. Um, they, they have, I believe from what I've heard, uh, enough nuclear bombs that they could bomb the entire earth seven times over. And I would still have leftover nuclear bombs. But does that mean we can take the military of, of America and say, all right, we can compare that with God's power? If anyone would have in his mind, yeah, we can. He has no idea what the holiness of power of God is. Suppose that we have some technology and with that technology, you're able to see and to hear a microbacteria when they're talking to each other, just hypothetically. And by means of amplification of their voices, you could actually um, hear actually what they say to each other. So what you do is you stick your ear to that device and then you hear one bacteria saying to another one, I'm bigger than you. You get your microscope and go... Yeah, yeah, it looks, it looks bigger than the other one. Yep, that's right. But how irrational would it be for that little tiny bacteria that you can't even see with your naked eye would say, well, since I'm a little bit I'm bigger than you, I am more like a human. What? It doesn't make sense. That's absurd. It's, it's nonsense. The scripture says... That God is holy in his power. Which means that God created the whole world out of nothing. He said, let there be light. And in his time, there's space, there's matter. We're created. When God said, when the scripture said that God created the world, it means that trees and grass and parks and rivers and oceans and earth and all other planets and the sun and all other stars in this galaxy and all the other millions of galaxies in the whole universe came into existence with what? Nothing but a word. And even going beyond that, if you think that is not enough, the scripture tells us that God is the one that upholds the world with the power of his word. Which means a little atom that we can't see. To the molecules. 
to the cells, to the DNA and the skin tissue and the nervous system, the greenhouse ecosystem, the universe being pulled together, how the moon orbits around the earth and the earth is orbiting around the sun. All of this, God is sustaining it every moment of every hour of every day. And yet, the scripture also tells us that he measured the heavens by what? By the span of his hand. You know what a span is? It's just the, the, the distance between your thumb to your pinky finger. When God created the universe and he brought it into existence and he's upholding it to him, what this means is it's, it's, it's like a, a little child building a sandcastle. Or drawing a butterfly. It's just as easy as that. And so how dare you, oh man, that would say, oh, we can compare our power to God's power. If, if our arms, if your arms were long enough, and let's say you can wrap around it all the trees and of the world and all the oceans and the rivers and all the, the earth and all other planets and entire galaxies, you're still infinitely smaller than our God. God is holy in his power. See how beautiful it is? This word, holy. If we reflect on that for a little bit, brothers and sisters, it puts things into perspective. It puts God's promises into perspective, right? It puts the promise that no one can snatch you out of his hand into the right perspective. Or you who are guarded by the power of God, it puts into perspective. And even for lost sinners, it puts into perspective what it means. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of this living, holy God. You don't want to anger this almighty God. You don't want to rebel against this God. You certainly don't want to experience the fury of his wrath. Now, let's continue with the passage. The angels are saying here, the whole earth is full of his glory. What? Holy, holy, holy. And immediately they go to the glory. Well, why? What's the connection? Or even better, what's the difference between God's holiness and his glory? If you do some systematic study over the scripture with, with the word glory, you would almost find this. You would find that holiness... They're looking at God in his throne where? In heaven. His glory. What does it fill? The earth. And it's kind of like the holiness of God is his invisible beauty. It's tucked away. His glory is his manifested beauty. The glory is the experience of God's Holiness. That's why we behold the glory of God. We experience what it is to encounter a holy God. That's what glory means. And it's the earth full of his glory. 
this word full or filling is repeated again three times. There is emphasis there in that passage where you get the train of his robe filling the temple and then you get the smoke is filling the house and now we get God's glory is filling the earth. There is so much glory, so much filling going on. It means filling the earth, meaning you look at the east, you look at the west, you look at the north or south, you see nothing but the glory of God. God's external visible beauty is filling every square inch of this earth. Whether we see it or not, it is there. You may close your eyes on, on, uh, on 12 midday sun, and he said it's dark, but does it really mean that the world is dark? So also the glory of the Lord is filling the earth. What does this mean? It means this, that the Lord, mighty God, rules with absolute authority over all of his creation. If all men agreed together to defy the glory of God, if all people chose to rebel against his sovereign rule, it won't diminish one bit of his reign. It won't take away anything of his glory that is filling the earth. That's the point. You know, you hear some people say, ah, oh, wouldn't it be awesome if... If God would rule over my boss at work or my unbelieving spouse at home or whatever monstrous, harsh trial I'm going through, wouldn't it be awesome for God to rule over this as though he is not? Brothers, I submit to you, if the Lord, if his glory is filling the whole earth, then I submit to you that God does rule your boss at work and your unbelieving spouse at home and your worst trials. And God never ceases, even for a moment, to manifest His glory everywhere. Second Chronicle 20, verse 6, it says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Okay, that's holiness. And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? This is why in preaching the gospel, we don't say to people, hey, make Jesus your Lord as though he's not. He is the Lord. We just say, believe. Meaning, trust in the fact that He is Lord. Agree with God that He is Lord. Stop rebelling against Him. Who Him? The Lord. And one day we know that every knee will bow and will not make, confess. That the one who is seated on the throne is Lord. This is, this is our holy God. He's an awesome God. He is a, a majestic God. A sovereign, all-powerful God. The holiness of God. And we come to the third point. Now we look at the worship. Well, if 
if that's his position, and that's who he is, holy, how do we worship him? Let us learn from the seraphim. Isaiah 6 verse 2 says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. Seraphim. Now, who are these creatures? What do we know about them? Other than the fact they're covering themselves because they want to fade away in the background so only God and his glory to be on display. What do we know about them? Very little, except that that word seraphim means burning ones, fiery angels. And if we go a bit further, without violating the text, we would say that, that we can judge by how close these angels are to the throne of God. We can easily conclude that they are the greatest creatures in the universe by proximity to the throne of God. And it says they have six wings. Now, why do they have six wings? It's not like they have two wings to fly with and the other wings are spare parts. It's not like that. It tells us here why they've got six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet. I remember once I was teaching in Sunday school uh, this passage, and I asked the kids, why does it say with two he covered his face? One kid said, ah, because uh, he didn't do his makeup in the morning or something. Another said uh, um, he didn't get to comb his hair, so he's kind of covering it. Of course it's not. This, this speaks of the splendor, glory of God. Let me explain to you what I mean. Do you remember when Moses... Um, asked God, show me your glory. What did God say? He said, no man shall see my face and live. And while my glory passes, I'm reading now the text, it says, I will cover you with my hand. There's a covering and there's glory. Now, why is that? Because no creature could endure the sight of this immense glory of God. It is too overwhelming. Too great to behold. I heard a story, and I'm not sure if it's true. <clears throat> and we have some um, doctors among us and Indians that can verify the validity of this story. But I heard a story of an Indian person who uh, worships the sun. And one day he just wanted to gaze upon the sun on a mid-summer uh, uh, hot day, and he gazed upon it for 10 minutes, and after that, he could no longer see. Apparently, the retina was burnt off or something. Now, again, I'm not sure if, if this is true, but it depicts something. It illustrates something that is true, that, that, that these angels, out of deep reverence for God, to they, they wouldn't dare to look directly upon the Lord. They judged themselves unworthy, unable to gaze upon that glory of God. And if you want to put it into perspective, you find that even though these angels were the greatest creatures ever lived, 
They were sinless creatures, yet they considered themselves way too insignificant to behold the God of glory. And if these angels who far exceed us in every way recognize they fall so short of that, how much more should we consider ourselves so unworthy in the sight of a, of a glory, a God who is full of glory? Well, we continue and it says, with two he flew. Now, why were they flying? They were hovering. It is to praise God, ready to serve him, ready to minister to him. And it's like we're, we're overhearing them saying, God, you are the object of our service. You are the object of our ministry, of our lives. How do we know this? We'll continue reading. And notice the result of that calling. What happens to the foundations of the threshold? It says here, the foundations of the thresholds, what? Trembled. At the voice of him who called out. These angelic beings, they were not speaking softly to each other in their ears. I mean, how loud do you have to be for the foundation? Not for anything, but the temple of God to shake. I mean, they were not shy. They weren't whispering to each other. The praises of God. Holy, holy, holy. They weren't thinking it and keeping it in their minds. No. They were thundering. They were rumbling and crying aloud, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What does this mean? They weren't worshipping out of duty, out of sense of obligation, with a, with a cold heart. No, no, no. No one was yawning in the presence of a holy God. No one was bored out of their brains when they worshipped this God. They were overthrilled with joy when they were beholding his holy God, so much their hearts were enlarged, their mind was committed, their emotions were inflamed, every fabric of their being was in union, declaring the glory of God. Right? You can't blame them, can you? Why? The Lord of hosts. Yahweh, of the army of God. No one can challenge his throne. No one. No one could restrain his sovereign will. No one. It wasn't uh, out of God's will that even his own son to be accused of criminals that he's never committed and to be crucified it was all along God's plan. And God didn't say, okay, well, they crucified him. I better go 
to plan B because plan A didn't, was not accomplished. So I might as well just raise him from the dead. No. Everything worked according to God's plan. He's only got one plan. There are no backup plans with God. He is sovereign. He is powerful. Even our own trials in life, even our own sickness, they're all part of God's sovereign plan. The Lord of hosts. This is a good lesson for us that we can learn from, yes? As we come into the presence of God. That majestic, sovereign, all-powerful God. Again, one preacher said it, and I can't say it any better than that. As we, he says this, as we see God as He really is, our hearts are enlarged, and we are elevated, and we are lifted up, and live in high places. No prayers too hard to answer. No circumstances that he's not able to change. No obstacle too hard to remove. No heart too hard for God to soften. No sinner too hard for God to save. This is where it begins. By having a true knowledge of God. So... As we embark upon this new chapter of our lives together, merging into one church, one body, this passage is calling us to behold the, the God the way Isaiah did, knowing his position, embracing his holiness, devoted to his worship as the very foundation of our unity, and then, and as a result of that, we put our hands together to the plow. Why? Because the more we set our minds on this God, in his greatness of this God, the more we'll be drawn to one another, having that one single purpose in life that would occupy our hearts, our mind, our will, our possessions. And that is to display the glory of God. I want to ask you this question today. What sort of God are you worshipping? Is he a puny God? Little God that does little things? Or are we worshipping the great God that does mighty things? We want to focus upon the greatness of God. I mean, give me a man, give me a woman who gazes, who beholds that mighty God. I'll show you a man who will climb mountains, dig, dig hills and turn them into valleys by the power of the God that he worships. We've got to focus on that God. Gaze upon him. Wait on him. He will amaze you. Amen? And finally, for those among us who are unsaved, unredeemed, what a wonderful thing to know that this infinite God who is seated on that throne, 
Not only is he infinite in power, but infinite in love. That he would condescend, become a man, while still remain to be 100% God. And would live perfectly righteous in every way. Obeys God's commands in ways that you and I could never do. And as he's building up this righteousness, and as he's continuing while he's building up this righteousness, he is suffering. It is through his suffering he's building up righteousness. And when a day has come, that God who's high and lifted up, Jesus Christ, when he's become a man, while he is God, would go to the cross. And on that cross, all the sins of everyone that calls upon him has been put upon him. And then the Father would look down on him to see my sins, sins of sinners upon the sinless man of God, the God-man. And as he bears our sins, God would pour out the wrath such that the justice of God that demands my punishment and your punishment is satisfied. Such that, that if you would believe in Jesus Christ being your perfect substitute, you are now declared righteous. That all the righteousness that Jesus accumulated would be imputed, meaning transferred into your account. Such that, that when the Father would look upon you, he would not see your own fragile, silly, little righteousness. But he would see the righteousness of his son Jesus in your account. And all your sins have been completely abolished because it means that Jesus has bore them all. All of them, the ones you've done, doing, and you will ever do, if but you trust in him, if but you come to Christ as your only Savior and Lord, if but you hold on to him, if but you believe that he is your substitute, your perfect substitute, you will be completely forgiven. And all the wickedness, that you've been accumulating for years, which is disappear. No longer guilty. Because Jesus has carried your guilt. And you'll be set free. And he would change your heart. He would cause you to delight in that sovereign God. And you will find yourself not feeling obligated with a big burden, but a desire burning within your chest to worship the holy God. What a beautiful thing. What is in this world that could ever come close to the holy God as he comes and looks into your own heart and says, this is going to be my home. I will live within you. I will take care of you and protect you by my Holy power. What a beautiful thing. This is the God that we worship. I urge you. I plead with you. 
come to Christ. Come and receive this wonderful holy God into your bosom, into your chest, and be in communion with him. What a wonderful life that you would live. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord God, high and lifted up, exalted far above all thrones, dominions, powers, principalities, all rulers, bow down and worship you. Lord, would you bless this merge with the truth about our mighty God would you please, Lord, allow it to run through our veins, our brain cells, coming through our lips and language and how we speak with one another. May God be the center, the object, the spotlight. May his glory, may his power, May who God is, may who you are, God, be all in all, sweep through this body of yours that will be totally given to you. In Jesus' name, amen.